In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world today. And this week, I have a special guest, a guest uh, who in 2009 inspired me to, to go on this journey to learn my faith again, to study my faith again. And uh, I'm glad to have him here on the show finally many years later. Uh, welcome aboard. Tim to the Catholic Toolbox. Uh, it's great to be with you, George. Hard to believe. 2009 just seems like last week to me. Uh, <laughs> it's been a few years ago, huh? That was, what, 13 years ago. But I'm so happy to hear that you're part of the fruits of that first tour all those years ago. Absolutely. It just goes to show that, you know, uh, many, I mean, we can't take these things for granted, you know, of, yeah. Uh, how you can spark uh, a faith journey for somebody and uh, and you helped me do that you know with your tour and the many talks there and um, I remember it was a Tim Staples CD uh, you know I was a, I was attacked by a Protestant about several things and I didn't know my faith at the time but there was that free Perusia Media CD lying around you know that <laughs> on my shelf you know I don't know where I had it, got it from and uh, yeah. it was the all it was the story of your conversion. I knew I had it there. I knew, you know what, I better go listen to that maybe. And, and I listened to it and then I was inspired by it. You know, I knew there's, there's answers to those, to, those, to those questions that people had. There were good Catholic answers. Yeah. And so I, I looked at the back and I said, oh, Perusia Media there. Oh, I better start getting more material. So I started getting more material and more material and studying through uh, the faith and... Uh, Wow. Uh, I went deeper and deeper, you know, into the deep, you know, uh, and, and yeah, I decided to practice my faith and it was all because I was, I had answers to those questions. And, and uh, so thank you for uh, a personal thank you for me for your witness and uh, the work that you do. It is a blessing. I, I often say, I can't believe I get paid to do this because I love it so much. I, I, what else is there to do in life except help people to come to Jesus, man? You know, this, this is what it's all about. I really love those guys down there, though, uh, Perusia, Charbel, and all the guys are there. They are just doing a fantastic work. And, you know, in this time, this age where there is so much darkness, all you got to do, have you ever noticed, George, if you walk into a really dark room, all you got to do is light a match and it lights up the whole room. You don't need a massive fire. Just light a match, man. 
like you said, it's just sharing those bits of information, handing somebody a CD, giving someone a DVD, giving someone, hey, check out perusiamedia.com, check out catholic.com, and you can literally change someone's life and change the world. I mean, you don't really have to do much. I mean, you just have to refer people to this material and they don't have to hear your voice. <laughs> well, right. it's somebody else. That's I find it a lot easier. You know, people listen to the episodes here, but they don't want to listen to me talk to them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a different world of material. You know, it really yeah. helps people because it's, it's, they can listen to it in their own time, in their own comfort. But thank, thank you for you. the work that you do. And uh, one of the things, uh, <clears throat> one of the topics that really did it for me, especially when you were in 2009, was, was the, the aspect and, and the topic. I think it's a foundational topic. I don't even argue anymore with Protestants uh, regarding Mary, Saints. I go right to the foundation, which is by what authority? Who speaks yes. for God? And really, I think you did a tremendous job in 2009 when you first came to Australia in explaining uh, the apostolic authority and by what authority and why we actually believe what we believe to begin with, why we believe the Bible, why we believe everything. So let's get started. Who speaks for God? Tim? Yes. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. This was the most important issue for me as well. When, as, as you know, you've heard my conversion story as a Protestant. I was raised on a sola scriptura mentality. That is the Bible alone is the, is the regular fide, the soul the sole rule of faith, it was understood. It was a given, and I was never really challenged on it in my younger years as a Baptist and, and later when I became a minister in an Assembly of God community, it was always a, a given. Well, of course, the Bible is the sole authority, but as you know, George, I was challenged by a Catholic fellow who challenged me to think on this point. Now, wait a minute, if the Bible is, is the sole rule of faith for you, how do you know that the Bible is the Word of God? You can't go to the Bible to prove the Bible is the sole rule of faith. That would be circular reason, reasoning. You would have no better ground, uh, ground to stand on than, say, the religious scientist who believes the writings of Mary Baker Eddy are inspired, or the Quran for the Muslim, or the Hindu Vedas, and on and on we could go, right? Various works that claim to be of divine origin will look, why do you accept that as the divinely inspired word of God and soul rule of faith? And the only thing I had to, to go to, George, was, well, of course, the Bible's the sole rule of faith because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There it is. 2 Timothy 3.16. Plain as day, right? And my buddy responds, George, and says, no, that doesn't say the Bible alone is the sole rule of faith. All that says is scripture is inspired of God and sure. profitable. Sure. Well, praise God. We believe that as, as Catholics, it's the inspired word of God and it's profitable. But that text doesn't tell you, for example, what the scripture is. For example, if you, if you have a, a, a fight in your church over, well, some are saying the epistle Barnabas should be in the Bible or Clement's letter 
uh, to the Corinthians should be in the Bible. And some may be saying, by the way, this is a historical fact in the early church, these kinds of arguments actually took place. There were many who accepted Clement's letter to the Corinthians, the epistle of Barnabas, and other works, the shepherd of Hermas and others, as inspired. And there were others, and many of them, including bishops, who rejected the book of Revelation, Hebrews, 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd Peter, and others. So this was the question, George, that he put to me. How do you know, Tim, if you're accepting your principle of sola scriptura, that is the Bible alone, sole rule of faith, how do you know what the scriptura is? How do you know there's 27 books in the New Testament? Why not 22? Why not 31? And it was like a, a lightning bolt zaps me. And I'm going, oh my gosh, my whole foundation is being undermined. Now, I came back as best I could, but I can remember going home and talking to my pastor, talking to people at my church, my brother Terry, who was very close, he and I were very close. And that started me, George, on this odyssey. I, I had to prove, okay, how do we know which books of the Bible are, are truly the Bible? And then, it, George, from there, it went on to, how do you know that a non-apostle can even write scripture like Mark and Luke? Right? What does the Bible say a non-apostle can write scripture? How do you know that revelation ceased at the end of the first century? How do you know when a person is married? Are you married when the priest says, I declare you man and wife? Are you married when the couple exchanges vows? Are you married when? You know, the Bible doesn't. And we could go on and on. Doctrine after doctrine. And, and those are the more obvious ones that require tradition. But all of our doctrines, be it the Trinity, the divinity of Christ and such, though we have a foundation in Scripture, the details concerning all of these doctrines required not just scripture but tradition and so george this launched me into a whole new world i had to suddenly consider as my friend uh, uh and as you know george it, i was actually in the in the marine corps at the time it was my marine buddy who was challenging me on this you know he started giving me books giving me you know in fact, he gave me a stack of books over a year uh, arguing with him. And I started diving in. And the more I dove in, George, this, this matter of authority became crystal clear that nowhere in Scripture and nowhere, in fact, we could go back not just the 2,000 years of Christianity, but we can go all the way back to Moses and beyond. Never has God ever established his people on this earth to be ruled and governed by a book. God always sent men guided by the power of the Holy Spirit who would speak for him, who would speak for God. This became so clear, you know, and I'll, I'll leave you with this thought, George, because I know you want to follow up, but, and perhaps the example among examples, and we could go through literally a litany of them is Jesus Christ himself, who, oh my gosh, he never wrote a word other than on the ground there in John chapter 8. We don't know what he wrote, right? Uh, 
with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus never wrote a word. He never told the apostles to go out in all the world and write Bibles and hand them out to people. And then you guys argue over it. And if you can't agree, you start your own churches. That is so foreign to what we see as a historical fact, as the MO, right? The modus operandi of what God does when he comes to this earth in the, in the person of the second person of the Blessed Trinity incarnate, Jesus Christ. He didn't establish a book. He established a church. And he gave to, first of all, he walked this earth and he spoke. He spoke the word of God. He was God manifest in the flesh. That's the way he chose to promulgate the truth. He spoke it. He performed miracles. He fulfilled prophecies in order to verify his authority as the Messiah, the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh. And then he established a church and gave to that church his authority to do the same thing, to go into all the world, we see in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and earth is given me, says Jesus. Go, therefore. He empowers the apostles to go and teach in his name, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching uh, men to uh, observe all that he has commanded, and he promised he would be with us to the end of the age, says verse 20 there. That's his MO. That's what we see in the book of Acts. The church goes out, proclaims. The first generation of Christians didn't have a New Testament, right? This is the MO. Now, God would have his church later write down certain essential truths, and we have that in the 27 books of the New Testament. But never do we find anywhere, including in the New Testament, that New Testament to be the sole rule of faith. No, St. Paul plainly says, in fact, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, stand fast in the traditions you have been taught either by word or written letter. So we see in Scripture that God establishes the church, and yes, later, certain essential truths are written down, but you also had the oral tradition that was just as much the word of God as was the written. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, St. Paul says, we give thanks that when we proclaim the word of God to you, you received it not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Notice, the spoken word was just as much the word of God as the written both were binding, and then here's the kicker. Both were binding because they're the word of God, but the question becomes, what do you do if you disagree over what is the tradition? What exactly. is yep. the word of God? Whether it's arguing over, the, you know, whether Barnab the epistle of Barnabas or Third John is inspired, or what do the scriptures mean? Well, Jesus tells us, he gives us perennial instructions till the end of time, that if we have a disagreement, what do we do? And Matthew 18, 15 through 18, if your brother offends against thee, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear you, take one or two with you, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. But if he will not hear them, tell it to the church. Notice he doesn't say, tell it to the Bible. He says, tell it to the church. And the one who fails to hear the church is to be as a heathen and a publican for whatever you, that is the church, finds on earth, shall be bound in heaven. 
whenever you lose on us, shall be loosed in heaven. I got to tell you, George, when I went through this intellectual process of seeing, this is God's MO. This is the way God has established for his word to be promulgated to the world. That rocked my world. It, it was, oh my gosh, this is so opposite of what I've been raised on and taught with Sola Scriptura. Now, I wasn't Catholic yet, George, because I, I can remember thinking, this just makes sense. The Catholic position makes sense. But the problem was, George, there were so many things about Catholicism that I thought were just crazy. I could not accept it. That began a process where I went doctrine to doctrine. And over a period of a couple of years, I found the fullness of the truth in the Catholic Church. I mean, it's absolutely, that, that's just absolutely tremendous. And that, that's very similar to my journey when you came in 2009, where many things were touched on, like Mary, the saints, uh, your story. But what really did it for me was the whole fact of sola scriptura and, and, and the fact that the church had the authority to actually canonize the books of scripture. You know, Pope Damasus I and the councils of Carthage and Hippo. I mean, when I found that out, I was just blown away. But to <laughs> have a Bible was uh, to determine which books are to be read in the liturgy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because different, different churches in different places were reading different letters before it had been codified. You know, and that just did it for me. When that rocks the very foundation of Protestantism, and the whole idea of sola scriptura and the whole fact that you, the reason you have a Bible is because we needed books to read at mass <laughs> That's right. before. And then I kept reading and reading and reading, discovering that the church was liturgical, the church, uh, you know, and this, again, it goes back to what you were saying. The whole point, the whole way that God speaks to people is through oral and written form. It's not always just written. It's, it's through tradition first. And, and really, it's just absolutely tremendous. But now I want to touch on apostolic authority. Yes. That the, the whole people look at the church today and they say, oh, well, this is just a social construct, you know, over time of the Pope and the bishops. It's just a political system that's just been established. Right. Or they say, as one person said, oh, well, the church today is not the ch early church, you know, of the, the, the same authority. I just want to touch on that with you. Yes. And th this is so important. This became one of the key issues for me as well, because I saw so clearly biblically that Sola Scriptura, if, if anyone's going to be an honest seeker of truth, Sola Scriptura goes out the window. But the, the problem I saw was, and one of the problems that I had was exactly this, how do you know that this that Jesus established continued how do you know there wasn't a change? Okay, certainly you have Jesus who spoke for God. You have the apostles to whom he gave authority. But how do you know that that uh, MO, if you will, didn't cease with the death of the last apostle? Yes. Then you have a sola scriptura sort of uh, MO, right? Well, that became a point of, real seeking for me. And here's what I discovered, is that when you read the earliest Christians, now, let, let me tell you what, before I get there, biblically speaking, what do we see in the New Testament? Is there any indication that Jesus' 
established a church with a certain MO, and then, however, it was going to change at some point, as you said, with, or as I said, with the death of the last apostle. And that simply does not exist. In fact, what we saw from Matthew 18, 15 through 18, is Jesus established the church with perennial, perennial instructions. It's not as though, okay, this is only for the first century. Jesus never says, I'm teaching this only for the first century, but for the next thousands of years, it's not gonna work that way. That's absurd. Oh, that's a great apostasy. Yes, exactly. Oh. And that, that's where that great apostasy comes in, in various different forms. Protestants generally teach a similar thing that you, what you have with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, the idea of, well, Jesus established this, but it fell apart. Well, what does that tell you about Jesus? Exactly. Jesus can't keep his church uh, uh, together for one generation. Are you kidding me? What does that say about Jesus? No, Jesus promised, lo, I will be with you all days. Now, this is in the context of establishing the authority of the church. He says, I will be with you for all days in Greek. Literally, in Greek, all days or every day until the end of time, I will be with you speaking through the church. The apostle, in fact, the word itself means sent or the one sent with the authority of the one who sent him. What we find in the New Testament is that you don't have authority to speak in the name of Jesus from a New Testament perspective, unless you are sent with apostolic authority. This is foundational to Christianity. In fact, in Hebrews chapter six, the inspired author talks about foundational principles. He says, let us not lay again the foundation of repentance uh, from sin and faith toward God. And he goes down a list of about five or six essential teachings. And one of those is the laying on of hands which is talking about ordination, the, the sacrament whereby the authority would be continued in the church. Hebrews is saying, the inspired author is saying, this is foundational stuff. We don't wanna to have to go back and lay this foundation again. Let's move on to perfection. This is foundational. And why? Because Jesus called the 12. And then the 12, under the guidance of St. Peter, to whom Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom, determined how that authority was to continue in the church. And we find that in the very first chapter of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, after Judas had committed suicide, the apostles didn't get, get together and say, hey, you know, that apostle thing was a great idea, but uh, we're down to 11 now. <laughs> no, they, they established a successor, a replacement for Judas. And notice the language that St. Peter use, uses in determining how his replacement was to be uh, accomplished, he says, quoting the Psalms, let another man take his office. Now that Greek word, their office, is episcopate or bishopric. So the apostle in succession is called the bishopric. And what do we see in the New Testament? But an office of bishop, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. So the bishop is, by definition, the successor of the apostle. So far from the apostle ceasing the idea of apostolic authority, ceasing at the end of the first century, no, you have successors of the apostles 
called as they continue in the church. And this is why Paul will say, for example, in the context of teaching a very famous text here in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, one I was raised on uh, as a Protestant, right? If you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and, and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved, right? For with the heart, man, I'm skipping down to verse 10, for with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Notice they St. Paul's talking about the proclamation of the truth of who Jesus Christ is as one of the foundations of, of our salvation, right? But then he says, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? See, you have to be sent by proper authority to have any authority yeah. to proclaim the fullness of the truth of our Catholic Christian faith. This is foundational right from the beginning. And what I found, George, when I started studying history and the earliest fathers of the church, you find this to be a foundational principle, just as it was in the inspired author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6. This was a foundational principle from the book of Acts on down for 2,000 years. Like notice in the book of Acts, chapter 15, when you have the first major heresy that was threatening to tear the church apart in the Judaizers. We won't get into details, but oh, I guess we can just say this much. These were the fellows who were teaching, hey, it's great you believe in Jesus, but if you want to get to heaven, you got to keep the old law, go to the temple, offer sacrifice. You got to especially be circumcised after the manner of Moses. This threatened to tear an early church apart. The church has its first council, the Council of Jerusalem, about 49 AD. We see it in Acts chapter 15. Peter stands up, Acts verses 7 through 11, and proclaims the truth of the matter. Everybody shuts up. They listen to Paul and Barnabas talk about their evangelistic exploits. But then notice in verses 24 through 28, the church then in council writes an epistle a letter encyclical and, and yes an encyclical you might say that's right in fact in Acts 16 verse 4 it's referred to as the dogmata dogmata yes the dogmata or the teachings and they had some canon law all the troubled there. churches yes a little bit of canon law in there as well about abstaining from the idols uh, that's right that's right. It's incredible what happens here. And, and again, this was a mind blower for me when I first realized this is Catholic stuff here. Look, in verses 24 through 28, notice what the apostles say. When they write the letter, they say, now we have heard that there are certain among you who went out from us, but had no mandate from us and taught. And they they lay out the heresy. But notice, here's the key. They were not sent from us. They did not have apostolic authority. That's the first argument the apostles use. Then they show how the, the argument is wrong. They, they send the epistle. The epistles are sent out. And whether you were going to be in full communion with Jesus Christ or not was determined by whether you obey this letter. 
that is sent out with apostolic authority. Oh my gosh, mind blower, George, because that's exactly what I found from the earliest Christians' writings, from St. Irenaeus. You know, St. Irenaeus, in the second century, he writes about, he says to the, her he was dealing with multiple heresies, but he says this, he says this to the heretics. He said, what if we didn't have any written uh, scriptures to refer to? Isn't that awesome, George? He's writing in about 177 AD. And he says to them, because evidently some of the heretics were using Paul's letters and such erroneously. So this is St. Irenaeus's argument. He says, what if we didn't have any written letters? Wouldn't it be necessary that you abide by the tradition found in all the churches? Wow. This was his argument. And then he goes through, and he says, and, and by the way, this is in book three, chapter three, or book three, yeah, that would be chapter three, paragraph three. And then there, there's a bunch of uh, beautiful little sections here where, where Irenaeus says, rather than go through all the apostolic churches and their succession lists, he said, I will appeal, appeal, to, the, appeal to the first and greatest, which is the church of Rome. And he lists all the bishops of Rome all the way back to St. Peter. And he says, this is the authority. This is the succession whereby the apostolic tradition and the preaching of the truth has come down unto us. And it's in that context that, that St. Irenaeus says that all other churches must agree with this church, the Church of Rome, because it's special place. I, I, I might stop you there uh, and say, well, th this addressed, you know, I did look at Eastern Orthodoxy at one stage. Yes. And, and you yourself, I think, did consider at one stage Eastern Orthodoxy. But, but something like this, where he speaks about the Church of Rome being the preserver of apostolic tradition, you know, it sort of assured me that the Pope is the universal head of the church, is the successor of Peter, has primacy of authority, not just, not just a, a, a leadership just out of respect. He actually has unique apostolic authority. Yeah, absolutely true, George. And, and I, agree, I agree with you. In fact, I did. I always jokingly say I was Orthodox for about a week. Uh, <laughs> because as I was studying the authority of the church, I saw so clearly, biblically, historically, and we could go from Irenaeus to Tertullian to St. Augustine, and you find the same argument used, apostolic succession, and most especially as it relates to the Church of Rome and the authority of the Church of Rome. You, this has been the perennial argument for, for 2,000 years. But I can remember, you know, I, I just didn't want to accept this Pope stuff. And so for a while there, it looked, okay, maybe I'll be Orthodox because I don't have to submit to a Pope. But like you said, I mean, not only in the Gospels does Peter stick out like a sore thumb, right? The keys of the kingdom and, you know, uh, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, you know, all those texts that are so obviously pointing to Peter, and then the book of Acts, you have Peter, Peter, everywhere, but historically, oh my goodness, the Bishop of Rome sticks out like a sore thumb. The fact is, Jesus established the church, just as he is the spiritual head of the church, and you can say when he was walking this earth, there you had a visible head of the church, Jesus, walking around on earth, but when he went to heaven, of course, he established a visible head in St. Peter and his successors, 
so that we could have the certainty of faith. We could have a man who can walk into the room, George, and say, thus saith God, and settle any matter that needs to be settled. My Lord, when I discovered this, George, this was, yes, it was unsettling. Yes, it rocked my world. It changed my life. But when I finally acquiesced to God's will and God's word, it became a source of joy and liberty. Oh, my goodness. You mean this whole thing doesn't depend on me and my ability to have to figure everything out? No, Jesus gave us a church so that we can get on with evangelism and learn, you know, just reveling in and loving the truths of our faith and share it with others with the certainty of the faith that we have, rather than having to reinvent the wheel, the, the wheel in every generation, and, and rather than us always being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine because we have to reprove everything all the time. What a liberation, ultimately, I found in simply bowing my knee to Jesus and his authority to change. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely amazing because it, it takes away the, the man-centeredness with the, with God. because you ha people have the Bible, then they need to read the Bible, interpret the Bible. What does this mean? How do you know you're right? I'm right. And that's why we have over, I don't know how many, I think you spoke in 2009 about how many denominations there are. I'm not even going to count how many denominations there are. We don't and, even know. <laughs> and everyone There's disagreeing so with each other. And, um, it's just absolutely beautiful. I mean, when we, when we see the papacy and the apostolic prayer in scripture, I mean, the fact that Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter allows to bind and loose for the 11, but then you see it in action in Acts 15. I mean, it's just, that really did it for me. I mean, when I saw, uh, when I really saw, uh, uh, there we go. You were frozen for a while. Okay. Yeah, you're back. We're now. back. We're, we're back. I think we, uh, you can hear me. We're back. So yeah. you see in Acts chapter 15 that Jesus gave them authority and they're actually using this authority in Acts 15, like a council. The Pope yeah. said, the bishops at the uh, 11 and the whole and the replacement for Judas, the succession. Yeah. I mean, accepting that, that whole success, it just gives us that assurance that what we believe is from God. It's not just a personal interpretation of what could be from God. We have certainty. And that's what did it for me and closed the deal to, to rediscover and come back to my Catholic faith because I knew I have certainty of what God is saying to us. Um, and and I really, uh, I want to get now into three practical tools. Here on the Catholic Toolbox, we, we, yes. we learn our faith here. But three practical tools to take action to, to present this, to, to actually evangelize and show people, especially our separated Protestant brethren, about how, and to present this teaching to people, how can we actually take action? What are three practical tools that we can take action with, Tim? Right, I'll tell you what. Number one, you've brought, George, you've heard it from me, you've heard it from Dr. Scott Hahn, you've heard it from so many different converts. What we have to do on an intellectual level is be prepared, folks. This goes back to our very first Pope in 1 Peter 
where St. Peter said, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts always and be ready, be prepared to respond, to give a reason. By the way, the Greek word there is where the word apologetics comes from, the Greek word apologia. Be ready to give everyone a reason for the hope that lies within you and do it with meekness and with, with respect. We've got to be prepared. We gotta be prepared to be able to respond to folks. And, and again, I repeat, you've heard this from Tim Staples, from Scott Hahn, from Steve Ray, from so many different converts that I, I could go down the list where their first step toward the Catholic Church was a simple question, right? The Socratic method. You don't have to be a brilliant theologian to evangelize folks. You simply, ask the right questions and here is number one how do you know the 27 books of the new testament are actually the 27 books of the new testament this is what did it to me at least got me started this is what got scott Hahn started and the others that i've mentioned i can't believe how many different catholic converts world famous ones all say the same thing George, I think we're on to something here, right? This is important. So be ready with that question. Ask the question and then expect the response, you know, because the responses will generally be, well, you know, they generally knew they had the Gospels right. And then they kind of uh, looked at the epistles and did they agree with the Gospels or not? And that's how they got the New Testament. But, you know, if you get a response like that, be prepared because what are they doing? They're appealing to a tradition that is not in sacred scripture. Do, do you see how the argument of the Protestant is that scripture is the sole rule of faith? So we don't need tradition. We don't need any unwritten tradition. But then they've just appealed to an unwritten tradition because <laughs> where, where does the New Testament teach that, yeah, well, you know, you generally know you got the Gospels right, and so just compare the epistles to the Gospels. Folks, that's not in the New Testament, number one, and number two, that would not work in real time, because you have lots of letters that did not contradict the Gospels. You have lots of letters that were written by apostolic men, that is, men who had contact with the apostles, like Mark did and like Luke did. Whether Clement, right, who is mentioned in Philippians chapter four, verse three in the New Testament, right? yeah, uh, uh, that's right. He is a successor of Peter as bishop of Rome. Come on, right? His so, letter didn't make it to the Bible. What's that? There's so many letters that didn't make it into Scripture, like the letter of Clement. Uvertium, Uberg. Are back. We, back? we are back. Wow. Yeah, we keep getting cut off. But yeah, real important here, George, is the fact that the New Testament does not have this sort of, you know, well, you have to compare this to that and then maybe this or, or this. That is not what the New Testament, what the New Testament teaches 
is you only accept as truth that which is the word of God. This is very important. So that if you come up with some tradition that is not found in the revelation that God has given to us, you don't follow that. This is why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, which we mentioned before, when we spoke the word of God to you, we give thanks that you received it, not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So if somebody appeals to a tradition like the Protestant does that says, well, you know, they kind of knew they had the gospel. Who knew they had the gospels right? There were lots of gospels floating around that, you know, purported to be written by apostles and, and apostolic men, right? But there are also great there are also great letters. I mean, like, like we mentioned before, we got cut off at the first letter of Clement to the Corinthians, the third pope. Yes. You know, as Hermas, the Didache, many great writings that were about to make it into the Bible, but they didn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the key is the tradition you're appealing to has to be equivalent to the word of God. Does any Protestant claim that they have the authority to pull up a tradition that is not in sacred scripture and claim it is equivalent to the word of God? No, they do not. Any tradition that can be accepted as the word of God must be an infallible tradition rooted in the revelation given in the first century. See, that eliminates all of these Protestant traditions. And guess what? Those Protestant traditions, by definition, are traditions of men because they don't have as their source an apostle of God apostolic authority. I'm going to tell you, bro, the, this kind of line of reasoning is what took me a long way toward the church, because I saw that the Protestants who are giving me these various traditions, and by the way, just talk to a Protestant about where the canon of scripture comes from, and you'll have, you'll have 10, 20 different theories as to why they accept the 27 books of the New Testament. They don't have the word of God to appeal to. And that is absolute proof positive that they are not. They do not represent the true church of Jesus Christ because the true church of Jesus Christ operates on the principle of apostolic authority. Everything we believe as Catholics, that is the infallible word of God is rooted in apostolic authority and the authority of the church. I mean, what really attracted me finally was the fact that, yes, Jesus established one pope, 11 apostles, and their successors, just like with Judas, the first replacement, the first bishop, and th that constant apostolic succession. We have every pope leading back to Peter. We have every bishop leading back to an apostle. And it's unbroken. And that's what sealed the deal for me. But let's now go into the second practical tool. How can we take action to bring people to the truth through right. showing them the authority? Right. A second tool is history. Um, what I believe it was Cardinal Newman who said to be steeped in history is to cease from being Protestant. I found that to be profoundly true. Because what you have as a matter of history, now I mentioned briefly St. Irenaeus, 
He said, what if you don't have scriptures? Wouldn't it be necessary that you accept the tradition? And then of course he appeals to the apostolic authority of the bishops of Rome that go all the way back to Peter. What you find as a matter of history, and let me give you a couple of examples. Tertullian, in one of the greatest minds of the second century, he wrote a, a, a book called The Demur Against the Heretic. And he basically establishes a two-pronged argument against the heretic that goes like this. Number one, he says, any of these heretics, and he's referring to Gnostics and all sorts of her heretics in the late second century here. He's writing this right around 190 to 200 AD, okay? He says, first of all, you ask these heretics, and notice, he doesn't get into all, immediately, he doesn't get into all the particular arguments that they're presenting. He says this, he says, you challenge these heretics as I do, to unroll their line of succession all the way back to an apostle. Because he says, if they don't have that, if they can't unroll the scroll and show you exactly what you were talking about, George, their successors all the way back to an apostle, then they don't even get a hearing. They are not even worth talking to, according to Tertullian, as far as having any authority. You can dismiss them. It doesn't matter the particular arguments they give, right? They're gone. Okay. But then he says, uh, in his second prong of his two-pronged approach, he says, but even if they can, right? Like our Orthodox friends, right? We have Orthodox people today who can give us their scrolls, and they do have apostolic authority. But he says this, even if they can, then you compare their doctrine with the doctrines that exist in the churches from day one, and you can eliminate them as well. Because in every situation, says Tertullian, you're going to have novelty. You're going to have teachings purporting to be apostolic that are not. So that's fascinating to me. And it was to me. Because apostolic authority was the absolute linchpin for Tertullian. And I'll give you one more. You go to St. Augustine now in the late 4th, early 5th century. But in his letter against the Donatists, I love this. He says, when, and, and he goes into a lot of detail about the, Donat the various false teachings, dogmatic as well as heretical of the Donatists. And as he's going through them, he says this. He, he says, he gives St. Augustine all of the successors of the Bishop of Rome, all the way back to Peter. Does this sound familiar, George? The same thing St. Irenaeus, uh, Irenaeus did. He lists all the bishops of Rome back to St. Peter, and he says, look over this list of bishops of Rome, and you will find there is not one Donatist among them. This is the rock upon which Christ built his church, says St. Augustine. All else, all others are scattered because this is the, 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 the sole rock upon which Christ built his church. My friend, George, this is your second tool. As a matter of historical fact, it is apostolic succession 
that is the linchpin, so radically so, that in the first 1500 years of the Christian era, you didn't have, I mean, you had the Orthodox and you had the Nestorians and the Monophysites who split off from the church that endured. Various different uh, folks who, who split off from the church never succeeded at all, or if they did, they quickly fell apart until you had the schisms with men who did have apostolic success, and that's why you have a schism like the Greek Orthodox that's lasted a thousand years, is because they have the Eucharist. They have apostolic authority. Now, they're wrong. They're heretical on, on various matters, but it's because of the emphasis on apostolic authority and apostolic succession in the early centuries of the church that you didn't have, Protestantism wouldn't even have been given a hearing in the early century. It would not be until the 16th century where you had a Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther who introduced a level of insanity that Christianity had never seen before in sola scriptura. No Christian, no heretic even taught something as crazy as sola scriptura until Martin Luther. But what quickly happened with the advent of Martin Luther and this new novel idea, contrary to scripture, sola scriptura, is it quickly fell apart. Within the, the, the very lifetime of Luther, you had over 40 denominations created. And today we have literally tens of thousands. In fact, nobody even knows how many Protestant denominations there even are because there are so many, because it has become chaos. And then you ask your Protestant friends, do you honestly believe that the, let's say, 50,000, just for argument's sake, uh, Protestant denominations that exist worldwide, do you honestly believe this is what Jesus had in mind when Jesus prophesied in John chapter 10, 16? He said, there shall be one fold, <laughs> one shepherd. Are you serious? The fact is, no. Jesus prophesied there would be one fold and one shepherd, and then he himself established that one shepherd in John 21, 15 through 17, when he said to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. That is, Jesus, the shepherd, established Peter to be the one shepherd over the universal people of God and his successors. That is why it is the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church alone that can say, we have Ephesians 4, 5 fulfilled. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's go to the third practical tool. All right. The third practical tool, my friend, is perhaps the most important of all. And that is we have to live it. My friend, because we could go through a hundred points of the best apologetics in existence, but I'm gonna tell you, brother, we've gotta live it. Because if people don't see Jesus Christ in our lives, vivified, they are gonna reject out of hand our message. We have learned this the hard way. You learned it in Australia. We've learned it here in the United States. We've learned it around the world with the priest scandals. 
if your wife doesn't measure up to your message, people are going to walk away. We, we're not even in the discussion anymore in popular culture in Australia and the United States. I hate to inform you of this, folks. We have great men of God, we do, in the church, but we're not even in the discussion, folks. The church has been pretty much rejected. We have got to rebuild our credibility as Catholic Christians, as Christians, in the Western world and around the world. And that's not easy to do. But what is going to do it is you and I, George, determining today that getting on our knees in front of the Blessed Sacrament, receiving our Lord well in the Eucharist is more important than all the apologetics arguments in the world. You know, I, I don't know if Gandhi actually said this, but if he didn't, he should have. You've probably heard it said many times. Gandhi said, I would have been a Christian until I met one, right? <laughs> and I don't know if he actually said that, but man, he should have. The bottom line is, you know, and, and certainly there's a certain fallacy to that argument because we're sinners, we're never going to be perfect. Uh, but the bottom line is, it is, it is true that we have to live our message. It is the most important. In fact, Pope St. Paul VI, in what I think is the greatest document ever written on evangelism, it's called Evangelii Nunciandi. I think it was 1975 or 76. Just a brilliant document. In sections 21 and 22, he, and I'll, I'll sum this up because I know we're out of time here, George, but let me sum this up in the words of Paul VI. He says in, in section 21 of that great document, he says that um, a life vivified by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ alive in the heart, that itself is the first act of evangelization a life lived for Jesus Christ. And I believe, George, we've missed that in the last 50, 60 years in, in our Catholic culture around the world, in particular in the Western world. It is a life vivified by the power of the Holy Spirit that is the first act of evangelization. And if you're not there, you're not going to get to the second that Pope Paul VI talked about. But in paragraph 22, he then says this, even though a life vivified by Jesus Christ is the, the first act of evangelization, it will never be enough because it will always lead to the question, why? Why do you live that way? And it is then, says Pope St. Paul VI, that we must be ready. And this is where we started, George, with 1 Peter 3.15. Pope St. Paul VI quotes 1 Peter 3.15. We must always be ready to give everyone a reason for the hope that lies within us because no matter how well a life is lived, it is never enough because we then have to follow. We have to follow the word of life with the word of God that is able to make us wise unto salvation. So really, this is what we're talking about, George. A life lived right? That third principle so that we can present the first two principles or the first two tools, intellectual meat to bring them finally home. I mean, it just, that was just absolutely 
a great way to top up this episode. And thank you so much for being with me, Tim. It's such a great honor to have you here. And, uh, and uh, we can't wait to have you here back in Australia, down, land down under. I'm looking forward to it, brother. God bless you. And thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. Until next week, God bless, take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.